0: Hi, I'm Donatella Galella. I'm an assistant professor of theater at the University of California at Riverside. I wrote a critical history of arena stage, specifically covering 1950 to 2010 with an epilogue that kind of brings us up to the present, at least to 2018. And the title of my book is America in the Round, Capital, Race and Nation at Washington DC's arena stage. Sure. I call it a critical history because a lot of Other books about regional theaters tend to be coffee table books that celebrate the theater and give you a lot of really terrific photos and highlight productions, but they don't tell you so much about what's happening behind the scenes or the politics and negotiation between art and finances when deciding on programming.
1: And was this something you worked on through the university program or it was something you came to on
0: your own? Yeah, a mix of that. So we were talking earlier that I was a dramaturgy intern at Arena Stage 10 years ago in the summer of 2009, working in the Artistic Development Department. And I did that because my now husband is from Arlington, and I wanted to spend the summer with him. So I applied to internships at local DC theaters. But I'm a native New Yorker, and so to be honest, I was quite snobby about my (laughs) theater preferences, and I thought, oh, New York is the be-all, end-all. But then when I started working at Arena and learning about its history, I realized that a lot of the theatrical professional ecosystem is this exchange between nonprofit regional theaters and New York City, so that so much of what ends up in New York actually started out here, or other shows that start in New York end up going to the regionals. So I became really fascinated by that and inspired by the leadership of people like Molly Smith and seeing queer folks and people of color in the artistic development department and getting to have this peek behind the scenes on how do they decide what to put up on stage. So that really inspired me when I started my PhD program that fall, that I decided my dissertation was going to be writing a history of arena stage. And then I turned that dissertation into a book. So it's been a 10 year process.
1: And so when people are reading your book, how are you relating that to people who maybe don't know anything about theater or arena stage or the arts in general? How can they be connected and really engaged in your book?
0: Yeah, I wrote the book, hopefully for both scholars and students and a general audience and arena stage fans. So I try to use sometimes accessible anecdotes or I don't presume that you necessarily know uh, what certain terms mean like symbolic capital which is this fancy phrase from a french sociologist named Pierre Bourdieu and i break it down for you so that you understand it means prestige so if i'm talking about how arena stage has accumulated symbolic capital i'm talking about how they put on shows that got good reviews that were artistically boundary pushing or politically risky and leftist and anti-war, how the theater won awards, how it wins prestigious grants from the Ford Foundation. So I try to break that down and make it concrete as opposed to just assuming you have this ethereal, theoretical knowledge. So uh, that's my hope and I structured the book so that it's in these three sections that focus on capital, race, and nation. And each one of those sections has a history chapter and then a case study chapter. So the history chapters cover 20 years. So the first one is 1950 to 1970, and just telling you about highlights of productions, how Arena Stage moved over here to Southwest, how it created this permanent building, and how it became a nonprofit theater since it was originally a for-profit company for the first decade. And alongside that, then I have the case study chapter that zeroes in on one particular play that was somehow a turning point or representative of that era or somehow historically groundbreaking. So for that first section, I talk about The Great White Hope by Howard Sackler and how that really changed the way that theater was produced in the United States. Uh, So I talk about the production process, how the script changed. I do a close reading of the play itself to talk about the themes of interracial relationships and the forces of racism on this black boxer and how he navigates that. And then at the same time I'm talking about how that play helped to give prestige to Arena Stage and set the foundation for all these other world premiere plays that Arena originated and then moved to New York. And then finally I look at reviews, so how the show was received, why was it so well liked, and so on. And so I use that kind of format of history and case study throughout the book.
1: So you just talked about the first section of the book, but I would like to dive a little bit more into the second and the third section.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So the second section then covers 1970 to 1990. So this is the second half of co-founder Zelda Fitch Handler's uh, tenure here as the artistic producer. And what I noticed is that basically after the success of The Great White Hope and just the civil rights politics of the mid to late 1960s, she had this realization that honestly, arena stage was a super white theater in this increasingly African-American and black diasporic city. So Zelda Fitzhandler really shifted the programming to start including these other voices. And the 80s is also the point at which we finally start having grants that support multiculturalism. So that was all happening at the same time, in addition to Zelda's interest in doing classic plays, but with multiracial casts. So all these elements started coming together. So As I talk about the history, my case study chapter is about the show Raisin, which is the musical version of A Raisin in the Sun. So it opened here at Arena in 1973. It went to Broadway, won the Tony for best musical. And so I cover how that adaptation process happened from this amazing African-American play into a musical. To be honest with you, I argue that the musical tames some of the feminist, anti-racist, anti-capitalist politics. It makes it a little more palatable. It uses some forms that we associate more with African Americans, like there's a big gospel number, which, you know, is not at all in the play. Um, So it was really appealing to people in the early 70s, especially given all the racial strife to see this really uplifting, feel-good show People gave standing ovations, which was rare back in the day. <laughs> and it, w- it finally brought in a different kind of audience to arena stage. I now move on to 1990 to 2010. So I cover the tenures of Doug Wager, who led the theater for almost a decade. And he had been working at arena for much, like since the 1970s beforehand. Um, and then I move into Molly Smith's tenure to today. So, the, mo- the thread that I mostly follow is that when Zelda Fitchhandler retired, Doug very much tried to continue that trend in multiculturalism in the early 90s, but Doug really put his foot down and he was committed to this new vision, this new multicultural understanding of the United States. We need to be more inclusive. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure there are at least one or two uh, black plays every year, that we're going to have some multiracial productions of classic works. And on the other hand, even though it made some people leave, again, it brought other people into the fold. And again, there started to be more funding to support those kinds of productions. Um, At that point also, when Molly started in 1998, suddenly arena was competing with something like 70 professional theater companies versus back in 1950 arena was the only professional resident company so i think she had to articulate a new niche that arena was doing that other companies were not doing in order to distinguish itself and so she went with the this american kind of branding she really concentrated i think on african american artists and audience members. And something that has been her particular stamp, of course, has been classic musicals with multiracial casts and really making sure that it's not just a couple of token people in the ensemble, but making sure that they're in leading roles and that she's thought very carefully about what does it mean to cast this kind of person in this role What might be the historical baggage of minstrelsy? Or what happens if this person's in this interracial relationship? How is that going to read on stage? So she and her team have been really thoughtful about that process. And as you well know, those musicals and uh, small like black musicals and black plays are the biggest money makers here at ARENA as well. And so to me, that really proves that diversity is a strength and diversity is actually not that risky in some ways, it actually can make money and be critically well received and push the envelope uh, in certain ways to redefine who gets to count as being American here. Mm -hmm. So of course my case study to go with it is Oklahoma. Uh, A big part of that was because Oklahoma made more money than anything else up until that point in 2010. It was celebrating the 60th anniversary and this beautiful Mead Center. And of course, the timing with my internship was starting to overlap with that production. And so I just saw it as so important and symbolic of what Molly has been trying to do and how Arena has been positioning itself as a center for American theater and really defining that as being a new multiracial United States. And I was so impressed that last year I noticed there were plays by at least four women of color of different racial ethnic backgrounds that we had Native Gardens by Karen Zacharias, Hold These Truths by Gian Cicada, which is the first time by the way that Arena Stage has ever staged a place centered on Asian American characters, uh, which is so meaningful for me and has been a, a new direction in my research on Asian American theater. Um, and then I think, did she do a, a play by Lydia Diamond with Smart People that season? Yeah, we,
1: Lydia was um, two seasons ago, and then she has Tony Stark right. coming in this year. And last yes. year we had Sovereignty with Mary Catherine Hazel, yes. which I w- was probably one of my favorite inclusions. Um, it's very rare that we see those stories. Uh, the fact that every season so sort of fun. incorporates more and more people stories Mm -hmm. um, and more and more of our entire country stories. Right, really exciting to me anyway.
0: That's such a beautiful story to model that kind of inclusion and that sometimes a lot of the plays that get produced, like the work of Mary Catherine Nagel, isn't just about... I don't know, positive three-dimensional characters having romantic hetero relationships, but showing you these darker histories in the U.S.'s past and not being willing to whitewash any of that. And I love that my book is called America in the Round um, in part because I think that the in the round space really allows you as an audience to, you have to look at each other and you have to acknowledge the diversity in the audience and be cognizant of not only the story you're seeing on stage, but I think in the back of your mind, you're always conscious that you're in a theater in the real world and making these connections t- between the story and the politics on stage with what's happening outside of the theater as well.
1: And why do you think theater in the aren't as common as they used to be? Because compared to like a proscenium stage, they just aren't as prevalent right now.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. <laughs> I wish that they were more common. I think that they make available a lot of interesting relationships between the audience and the actors. Uh, it might be that sometimes it means the stages are smaller, there are certain restrictions on design and sight lines, uh, but I love the intimacy of that. But yeah, the proscenium just became super popular as the standard form of theater. Um, you know really from Wagner in the late 1800s to today so a lot of it is also um, I think Americans model a lot of their theaters on European theaters at that time and so that's why we have that kind of setup but it creates a kind of stark separation between like that's the theatrical world and this is the audience world but you mentioned
1: that this started as your dissertation. When did you realize when writing your dissertation that this was going to
0: be a book? Um, So I think I always thought it was going to be a book. I'll say that the direction of the dissertation project and book really changed over time. That originally I thought it was just going to be about economics uh, because of being a New Yorker and being interested in this exchange of Broadway transfers, for example. And then, um, then I became really interested in African American theater and I realized that I had internalized a lot of racism and I hadn't valued these plays as much as I should have. But when I got to see plays like Marcus Gardley's Every Tongue Confess Here or Alice Childress's Trouble in Mind, they blew my mind seeing these stories that I hadn't seen before and it, it just totally changed what I valued Also, as I was working on this, Black Lives Matter was happening, and I was in New York doing my PhD. And so it just made me realize the trenchant and historical nature of systemic racism. And so then I realized, like, I have to tell these stories that illuminate the racial politics of arena stage and show appreciation to Black artists and audiences. And I was also reflecting on how my internship was at the start of the Obama era. Mm -hmm. And so there's, right, there's a lot of this sense Mm -hmm. of hope and change and multiracialism. And that made me think a lot more about who gets to be called American and how Arena Stage was Mm -hmm. negotiating that. But originally, it really was just going to be like, I'm going to talk about different major shows that made it to Broadway. And I think I realized that if I had told that story, it would have recentered Broadway and New York City, and there's already so much scholarship about that and not as much about these major theaters in other cities. And DC, I think, is such an underappreciated theater city.
1: At the point that ARENA sort of needed to figure out how to shift their identity a little bit, mm-hmm. it was because we have such a plethora of amazing theaters in the city. Yeah, and we have actors that come down here and, you know, they think they're gonna stay for a little bit and then they're gonna go to New York, but then they're like, But then I just I just kept getting jobs. Right. Like it's stable work down here. If you want a stable career in mm-hmm. theater with with plenty of opportunities to also go yeah. and perform in New York because we have actors that D C local Actors that are currently performing on Broadway right now Mm -hmm. have performed on Broadway in the past. Um, It's something you can go out of (laughs) town and do for a little bit and then come back. Well, in our audiences, they know you and they feel like they've seen you so many times on the stage.
0: I agree. It lets an actor flourish and develop their craft Mm -hmm. and have a home. And then the audience has this richer experience because... They've seen people like Ejiro or Nicolas Rodriguez in Mm -hmm. all of these prior productions, and then it influences how they then receive newer productions. And I think that history goes back to how one of Zelda's main ideas was having a resident acting ensemble. And that was really unusual in the United States. And again, it was a model she had seen in Europe of having, you know, 12 to 20 salaried year-round actors on hand who would live in D.C., appear in two to three shows, and sometimes even do those plays in repertory so that it really developed the actor's craft. But again, it also was so pleasurable for an audience member to be able to see a person in these different roles in different shows over time. Uh, but unfortunately, I get because of lots of cuts to arts funding in the late 80s, early 90s, and shifting that funding more toward multiculturalism uh, that, unfortunately, the resonant Ensemble was, um, you know, gone from Arena. But Arena was one of the last places to have one. And really, you know, one of the only places that still has it is the Oregon Shakespeare Festival.
1: What I find really interesting is that it was your internship here that sort of sparked the the further academic research and and um, and led to the book and and it strikes me as really interesting because like it it made me think of when when I was in grad school I interned at American Indian uh, the Smithsonian American Indian Museum for a summer while I was like developing my thesis and pieces of being in that internship and being in that museum. I had an entire case study. Like, the last third of my thesis was all about the American Indian Museum. And it's really interesting to me that, like, you know, we can talk about internships in any way, shape, or form, but they really can be yeah. instrumental in in what happens next in your life. And it's different than, you know, being a full-time employee because you're so ingrained mm-hmm. in like the day-to-day work of it. But when you're in an internship, you do sort of have the space to be like, mm-hmm. oh my, like, right. oh goodness, this is amazing. And and um, and this is so inspiring or this inspires me to do whatever is the next thing. So I just, I was wondering if you might talk a little bit more about um, that kind of process and how you got from point A to point B Z. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm grateful for you sharing that. And we had talked also about mm-hmm. your fellowship, right? Yeah. And getting yeah. into your position today. And that a lot of that goes back to the Allen Lee Hughes Fellowship here at Arena Stage, which is one of those initiatives that came out of around 1990 with this big fund from the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts. And the idea was we need to pay interns and specifically recruit underrepresented people in theater so that we can train them and give them hands-on experience so that they can be the next generation of artistic administrators. And it was a really unprecedented program in comparison to other regional theaters and amazing that it's still here today and the name for African-American lighting designer Alan Lee Hughes. And even when I was an intern in 2009, a bunch of people who had been fellows kind of graduated into full-time positions here. And you could just see that it's had this profound effect. Several have become my colleagues and are also theater professors. And I think that that's incredible. And it's just such an important program. And I wish that There are more resources for other theaters to do the same thing, but you're right that it can be a life-changing experience for that individual and you get that experience and opportunity to learn as you go. And it's also though a structural change because it's not just a couple of people, it's many, it's at least a dozen every year over the course of decades. And so you can really shift the landscape in American theater.